scripture lesson this evening, Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 21, then John chapter 20, verses 20 to 36. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the spirit of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and clothed them. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. 
While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the light that has come, the light that is Christ himself, for the light that you give us by your word. And we pray now that you would enlighten our eyes, our hearts, and our minds to be able to understand this, your word, this night. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever struggle to know what to think and feel at certain times of the church year, particularly Ash Wednesday and Good Friday? As a church, we rightly place an emphasis upon the accomplished work of Christ, that He has risen from the dead and has ascended and is seated upon His heavenly throne, ruling and reigning over all things. And that being true should lead our faith to a certain disposition, a certain outlook, even as Paul articulates in 1 Corinthians 15, where he basically applies the resurrection to the faith and life of believers. But here we are at the beginning of Lent, and Resurrection Sunday is not until the end of March. So are we to pretend that Jesus isn't resurrected? Are we to try to conjure up some kind of feelings about our own mortality, somehow ignoring the resurrection in our thinking until we get to Easter Sunday? To answer simply and directly, no, we are not to do that. Partly because each Lord's Day isn't technically part of Lent. Uh, They're considered Sundays in Lent or during Lent, but they are not of Lent. The liturgy for the Lenten season will change a little bit as is appropriate, but we don't act and pretend as if Jesus hasn't already conquered sin and death. So how should we understand what we're about this evening and what purpose does it serve? Basically, Ash Wednesday is intended to be a bold confrontation with death. Now, despite being a culture of death in some regards, in other ways, our society tries to ignore death, seeks ways to cheat it or postpone it, whether by sequestering the dying out of view or even attempting to make those who have died look less dead through cosmetics and so forth. But the church comes along on a day like today and brashly declares, face it, you will die and your body will decay. You are powerless to prevent it and denial will get you nowhere. Even the finest medical technology can do nothing to change the fact that that death is exactly what it always has been, one per person. So stop kidding yourself. And such a stark statement and perspective, such a heavy dose of reality is was to cause one to consider life and death, particularly apart from Christ and in Christ. Ashes, the sign of death, are put on the forehead, not in some random pattern, but in the shape of the cross. This alters the starkness of the message, which thus becomes, you will die, you cannot change that, but you can die in Christ, whose death transforms your own demise. Meanwhile, live in Christ and discover Christ's new life, which conquers death. And so it is to this end that we're going to briefly consider aspects of the text from Genesis 3 and John 12 this evening. Fittingly, we'll begin in Genesis 3. And let's start by noting the parallels that there are between the judgment pronounced on the serpent and the judgment pronounced on Adam. 
the word curse is explicitly used in reference to both. Cursed are you above all cattle. Cursed is the ground with reference to you. The serpent will crawl on his belly. belly. Adam will toil. The serpent will eat dust. Adam will eat of the ground. All the days of your life. All the days of your life. Then we notice that in verses 18 and 19, the man's curse is expanded along the same thematic lines. Ground produces thorns and thistles, sweat of the nose, eat food, end of life. And they're referenced to dust in, in relation to both the curses upon the serpent and upon the man. So what does this indicate? Well, that the judgments against them are similar because Adam chose to be identified with the serpent. He experiences a similar judgment to the serpent. Also, both the serpent and Adam consume dust, don't they? The serpent consumes men made of dust, and Adam will consume things produced from the ground. So there's a similar orientation in that regard. And further, the phrasing at the beginning of verse 19 literally uh, reads, In the sweat of your nose. Now, the various translations try to clean it up and say a sweat of your face or a sweat of your brow. Uh, And immediately we get this agrarian image of Adam working hard, digging at the ground, and beads of sweat all over his forehead and face as the sun beats down upon him. And certainly there's a physical aspect to this. But the sweat of your nose conveys that Adam's face will be toward the ground and that he's, as he's working, sweat will, will drip off of his nose. And if you've ever been working out, uh, especially in the heat of summer, let's say you're doing some push-ups or maybe even burpees, you know, something that has you going to the ground a bunch, what inevitably happens? Well, sweat ran down your face and, and it drips off your nose. Because you're facing the ground for these movements. And you end up with, you know, this a grouping of, or, you know, blotches of sweat uh, spots below you. Where is the serpent's nose? Well, it's in the ground. It's in the dust. And also consider that the nose is the center of man's face. It's the very location where God breathed in the breath of life when he created man. As one scholar remarks, the nose that had breathed in God's very breath in Genesis 2-7 would now drip with sweat because of man's sin. But what does the Lord say will come about as a result of the sweat of the nose? Bread, which is something that isn't simply harvested and eaten, but requires tools and baking and such things. And bread is indicative of life. And so there's this implicit thread of grace running through the text. The promised seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head in verse 15. And now Adam is told he'll produce bread by the sweat of his nose. Jesus will produce the bread of life himself through the bloody sweat from his nose, through his suffering and death. In Luke 22, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives in a garden, in a garden on a mountain. Remember, the Garden of Eden was located on a mountain. And we read, And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, what is this picturing but the reversal of the curse through the second Adam? Notice the the themes of sweat and blood and ground. They have their origin here in Genesis 3. And we should understand how Jesus is taking on the curse of sin and its effects and overcoming them. Even the fact that the word death is not explicitly used by the Lord in regards to Adam, though alluded to in the return to the dust, is interesting. The judgment was sure death, and yet Adam doesn't die this day. Arguably, a substitute dies in his place. Another's blood is shed, even as indicated by the garments of skins that Yahweh provides. 
And for there to be animal skins, there must be death and bloodshed, substitution and covering. So God looks on Adam and Eve, sees their garments, and sees what he's done for them. But this is also Adam's way forward in life. Here is the path that he now has to take. This is the way God has for him, and underlying it all is a hope for the future. And yes, verse 19 will be fulfilled, which is a key theme to our service this this evening. We, We are dust, and to dust we shall return, even as Adam did. But it isn't the last word. Well, hopefully having gotten our minds thinking about some of that imagery that we find in Genesis 3, let's turn our attention to the text we find in John 12, particularly in verse 24. But what is the context immediately and then more broadly? Well, immediately before in uh, before verse 20, in verses 12 to 19, John records the triumphal entry, uh, the events of Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, and specifically we read in verses 17 and 18. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had gone, that he had done this sign. Now, back in chapter 11, John records the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which then leads to the plotting by the chief priests and Pharisees, the council, to kill Jesus. At the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus is in nearby Bethany and is anointed by Mary, Lazarus' sister. A crowd shows up there, not only because Jesus is there, but also to see the raised Lazarus, which then leads the priest, the chief priest, to plot again, this time, and how they might put Lazarus to death. And why? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Then comes the triumphal entry, as mentioned already. And then we're told in verse 19, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Which then leads us right into verses 20 to 26. Listen to them again. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So we just hear the world is going after him. And what do we read about next? The Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus says, the hour has come. It's time. In chapter 2 at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, when Jesus performed his first miracle, changing water into wine, he told Mary, his mother, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 7, the Jews sought to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Then in chapter 8, while teaching in the temple, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And then at the beginning of chapter 13, we hear, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. See, Jesus' ministry has been building to this moment, to this hour, and not just his ministry, but the history of the world hinges and turns at this very point. The hour that has been anticipated since Genesis 3.15 and even farther back in the mind of God and the fellowship of the eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. 
But how has God chosen to glorify His Son? That's the question. And what is it that brings Jesus to this point? What is it that indicates that the time has finally come? The Greeks come looking for Jesus. They wanted to see Him. And so it signals that Jesus' ministry to the Jews is finished. And He now belongs to the wider world. And notice to whom the Greeks speak. They, they come to Philip, the disciple with a Greek name. And the reference to Bethsaida of Galilee should send our minds running back to the opening chapter and the calling of Philip as a disciple. And when we take a look at verses 43 and 44 there, what do we discover? That Philip was from Bethsaida, which is also the city of Andrew and Peter. Here in chapter 12, to whom does Philip take the Greeks? Andrew, who seems to be the guy that's always bringing someone to Jesus in John's gospel. So Philip and Andrew let Jesus know what the Greeks request. And how does he respond? What does he say? He tells a parable about a seed falling into the ground and dying and how that is the pattern for anyone who would follow and serve him. Let's pause and focus on verse 24 and consider what Jesus says a bit more closely. Though the analogy seems pretty obvious and straightforward so that you know anyone who knows anything about gardening knows what Jesus means. You plant a seed in the ground, you bury it, and then that seed is no longer a seed but becomes a plant of some sort which then produces fruit according to its kind, etc. You know, we get it. But did you happen to notice what type of seed, what type of grain Jesus specifically mentions? A grain of wheat. And when that wheat grows up, it produces multiple grains of wheat, doesn't it? And then from what do you make wheat? Bread. Go back to Genesis 3.19. In the sweat of your nose you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. What is Jesus doing but fulfilling, even transforming this text in a way that we wouldn't guess on our own? See, in Jesus' parable, there's an intentional returning to the ground and being buried and dying so that there can be greater fruitfulness and life as a result. Of course, that pictures what Jesus will accomplish through his own death, his burial in the ground, in the dust, and then his subsequent resurrection unto more life, even a greater and more fruitful life. Jesus does this first, but then in verses 25 to 26, he's quick to make the association to discipleship, to what it means to serve and follow him. He uses that stark language of those who love their life, losing it, and those hating it in this world, keeping it for eternal life. And this indicates a new ordering of love, particularly for his audience of that day and time, living in the old world, the old order of things before Christ's coming. But all that's changing. That old world can't be clung to any longer if you really want to live and live forever. No, Christ's claims are exclusive, and he requires an exclusive allegiance. Jesus is Yahweh, and he still requires that there be no other gods. But then what does Jesus say in verse 26? You know, this is John's version of the cross-bearing theology that we hear in Mark and Luke, which we even considered briefly last Sunday. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Now, if anyone ministers to me, serves me, certainly there's the theme of worship that underlies this as well, then he or she must follow Jesus. And where is Jesus going? To the cross, to death, and then burial. Well, likewise, we follow Jesus in the same. But how? By our own death at the end of our life, whenever that may be? No, we follow Jesus to death 
in our baptism, even as Paul instructs us in Romans. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. You know, perhaps it would be fitting to think of the Ash Wednesday service as a baptism reminder service. That we're following Christ and that in Him we've been planted in the ground, in the earth, because we've been baptized. And through the life that He gives us by the Holy Spirit, then we bear much fruit. Even as Paul continues, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And doesn't that perfectly coincide with the rest of verse 26 in John 12, what Jesus says? And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, where is Christ? In heaven, ascended, vindicated, and victorious. And we are there with him by faith, even now, while also believing in the life that is yet to be lived with Christ in his presence. But not only that, and what else does this life that follows Christ, this life that pursues the way of the cross, that is given over in service to him, result? The honor of the Father. To be valued by the Father. You know, what a remarkable thing to consider. And you receive a similar commendation as does the Son who was honored by the Father. The Son honored the Father, the Father honored the Son, and those who serve, those who honor the Son are honored by the Father. That's quite some company to keep, isn't it? And it comes through God's way, which is the way of the cross. But even that instrument of death in the ancient world is transformed into a symbol of life, a a sign of what we believe. Foolishness to the Greeks and Romans, none of them would have worn a cross as jewelry any more than we'd wear an electric chair or a hangman's noose as a necklace or fashionable earrings. Or think of it this way. The very dust to which we shall all return one day in this mortal life has been turned into a glorified garden from which we will rise to eternal life at the second coming of Christ. You know, graveyards are just gardens with seeds planted. And hopefully that also gives us some perspective of how to faithfully view death, which then hopefully further emboldens us to live this present life. So Jesus gives us this stark paradox, the grain dying in order to produce more fruit, which mirrors the paradox of the cross. It's a life which is not guarded and preserved, but forever thrown away. Yet it's a life constantly received as a fresh gift from the source of all life, in whose eternally outpoured love it has the assurance that death has lost its dominion. So as we go in the next 40 days or so, we should do so not as those who ignore or are afraid of death, but as those who face it daily in our cross-bearing, as we die more and more to ourselves and live more and more unto Christ in obedience to His Word. And let us consider in the weeks to come, not only as, let's not consider them only as a time to more intently pursue greater personal spiritual discipline, which can be perfectly appropriate. But let us consider that as those who know that death has been conquered and that death leads to fruitfulness, 
Well, let us pursue the fruitfulness evidenced in service to others, whether those within our own homes, to our neighbors, other church members, co-workers, or even strangers. Still more, let us also consider this as a season to more readily proclaim the Christ who has conquered death, calling and leading others to follow Him so that they too may die in order to live. In a culture that is bent on curse and death, let us proclaim display blessing and life. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word that it is indeed a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. And we thank you that you illumine the way before us by your word and by your spirit. And so strengthen us to live more faithfully unto you and to your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.